welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. I have more than 150 interviews at this point to help you make that move, and I've created a guide to help you even more. 10 of the best insights and tools from the first 100 plus interviews. Because you find these interviews valuable to listen to, I know you'll find this guide valuable as well. It takes less than a minute to get. Just go to theeverydayinnovator.com and you can download it at the top of the page. Please check it out. Now, I love discussing how organizations can improve their product performance. This is essential to organizations to stay competitive. And doing so has become more challenging as the business environment for most organizations is changing more quickly and contains greater uncertainty than it did in the past. Organizations that are better at responding to these changes, well, they can create a competitive advantage. And one way to accomplish that is through strategic agility. Dan Montgomery is a practitioner of strategic agility and shares with us simple and practical tools in this interview. He's also the co-author of The Institute Way, Simplify Strategic Planning and Management with the Balanced Scorecard, and he's helped several organizations create strategic plans and add agility. If you hear something that you want to review later or you want to just see the written summary of the discussion, head over to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 151. That's also a great way to share the insights with others. Just send them the link to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 151. And you'll find some buttons at the top of that page that makes that even easier for you to be able to share it with other colleagues you have. Please enjoy the interview. Dan, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Good to be here. So you're one of my now interview friends who I met on LinkedIn, which is a great platform. I find lots of product managers on LinkedIn. And occasionally find someone like you that I go, wow, this is a person I want to talk to more because you have good insights to bring to the everyday innovators listening. In this case, this has to do with kind of this intersection that product managers live in, which is we, we deal with change all the time because we're bringing something new into existence. We're, we're being innovators that can involve disruption and creation of opportunity and if there's any place that we have this need for more agility, it's kind of in the midst of that work. And you're a person who talks about strategic agility, and I'm really fascinated to learn more about this perspective you have. So let's start there. When you say strategic agility, what is it that you mean? Strategic agility means that an organization or an enterprise has an ability to sense and respond to change in its environment. And that change could be opportunity, it could be risk, threats, disruptions, however you want to look at it, uh, to do that in real time or something closer to real time. The Mm -hmm. traditional approach to strategic planning arose in a world that was more predictable. And, uh, you know, it it was efficient to project things three to five years out in the future, align everybody around that, uh, come up with various strategic initiatives and changes because you, you, your, your market environment was much more predictable. Mm-hmm. So these kinds of approaches that a lot of us who've been to business school, for instance, have been trained in, or if you've worked in consulting, started way back in like the 1920s, you know, with Sloan at General Motors, for instance, where mm. 
it was a steadily growing market. And if you look at the auto industry, for instance, it was really quite predictable for decades until it wasn't. Yeah, there, there were new factors that came into the picture here. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, many of them speaking Japanese, for example. Uh, so so that's the point, that it's, it's a model that recognizes that in the global knowledge economy we've got now, uh, the the level of disruption and uncertainty is much, much higher. So when that's happening to you, you need to take a different approach than you know, what you might have been used to. Mm-hmm. And so some of these tools, like the, the SWOT analysis is a pretty standard strategic planning tool, right? So the yeah. SWOT is strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats for listeners. And pretty standard for organizations to maybe once a year do a, do a SWOT analysis and try to get a handle on changes impacting them, opportunities they have, where can we go next? And then we started seeing organizations maybe doing this once a quarter because the, the pace of change was increasing. And the, the right. change is coming from not just competitors' actions, but we as consumers, you know, our, our preferences are changing more quickly as fueled by social media and just the pace of technology change and everything else. And there's this pain, and we feel it as product managers and certainly organizational leaders feel it, to be more agile and to be able to adapt more quickly. And so i um, really interested to start talking about some tools. I am curious to paint the, the opposite picture first. And think about you know what what's going on inside an organization. What might be the the symptoms that we would see of an organization that is lacking this strategic agility? Well, I think of three main things. Uh, one of them is that the plan gets out of date very quickly, uh, and I think that happens. Yeah, you know, it becomes what I call shelfware, and I think that happens because. Uh, you've got this top-down approach based on a lot of what uh, General Stanley McChrystal called predictive hubris, the idea that, well, we can we can predict the future if we crunch enough data, and in fact, we can't. So you've got a plan that's authored by just a few people. So there's not enough diversity in the plan in the first place, uh, so it more quickly becomes obsolete, which which leads us to the second problem which is that there haven't been enough people involved in it. So there's not any true buy-in to what the plan is. People may literally just not even understand what the plan is. There's this presumption that the the senior leaders and the experts and the consultants come up with the plan, and then you do something called change management to get the troops to go along with the plan. And I used to be in the change management practice at Accenture and came to really despise the term. I don't think you can manage change like that. You can lead it, but you can't manage it. The third problem I see with a non-agile organization is you have the presumption that you can you can actually plan a strategy out. Like when you talk about strategic planning, when you talk about strategy, people think strategic planning immediately. And actually strategy and planning are two different things. Strategy is a thinking process that's ongoing. Planning is something where you have to go through this periodic process of um, setting goals and objectives, budgets, doing all of that kind of stuff. And if you have a strategic plan that presumes to know what you're going to be doing in five years, it's, it's kind of like what the Soviet Union used to do, where they would have a plan and they would know how many tires they're going to make three years out 
And, you know, they were notorious for having these terrible mismatches between supply and demand because they weren't being agile. Mm-hmm. So those are the three things. It's the, the too much of a top-down approach, mm-hmm. uh, not buy-in from other folks, and taking on too many things. So we see this phenomenon where you have what I call initiative overload. There's this long list of projects, and uh, the the neuropsychology people tell us when you look at that, it becomes overwhelming. Hmm. So the idea is to start less and finish more. Just focus on one or two of the most important things at a time. Forget the rest of it. And that's exactly something that we've learned from Agile in the context of software development, mm-hmm. but you can apply it to strategy more generally. So I say start less, finish more, but I also say pivot fast. And that's how we address the issue of having a, a plan that becomes shelfware as soon as the binder's printed and goes up on the shelf. That you need to have, uh, create what one friend of mine calls integrating events where you can have a larger discussion about strategy, what changes are coming on the horizon, what your competitors are doing, new technologies, mm-hmm. which is really going back through that SWAT process or the other one called the Pestel process, looking right. at the political, economic, social, technological, environmental, and legal things. That's just a good way to categorize a lot of things and look at, well, what do we know for sure and what are the big unknowns? And have a conversation about that as a pretty large group and do that pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. So start less, finish more, and pivot fast. Yeah, P- Pastel is a very good tool for doing um, that environmental scanning of what's what's taking place in our environment today and what are kind of the big trends. I love that phrase, you know, start less, finish more, and pivot fast because it conveys this notion of organizations have, I think, uh, somewhat of a fear of having the wrong strategy in place and they're making some bets by trying to start too much. And for product managers, this is the area of, of portfolio management, which were uh, some, usually this is more of a senior manager issue, but product managers certainly should be aware of it, of how do we go about selecting the right projects for us to start. And if we can focus our resources on the right ones and indeed start less, we get more finished more quickly and we get the benefit of that to the organization. Exactly. I'm going to say it again, start less, finish more and pivot fast. When you're talking about the symptoms of you know what an organization looks like that's lacking strategic agility, you went through three. From a product management perspective, there's one more I wanted to ask you about. And this might even be in the case of organizations that you've worked with that, that want to be more agile and they start going down this path, maybe implementing some of the, the tools we'll talk about here in a moment. But still, I see the symptom come up more and more that there's barriers in place in the organization that prevent real real change from taking place. That they, for product managers and innovators, they prevent the innovation part. So that we might be getting better at being more agile in some perspectives, but there's still these barriers in place that don't allow for you know for us to be, really be making a difference. And I'm just curious what you've seen in terms of, of barriers that are, are established. What have you seen that prevents this uh, ability to kind of adapt this more strategic agility? Yeah, I think you could take a very holistic look at, at what that is, because as you say, there are a lot of barriers that you could say are bureaucratic. That is that they're they're baked into the structure and the systems and the processes in the organization, which are all those kind of objective things that you can look at. The other thing is 
the psychology and the culture that uh. goes hand in hand with that, the more subjective feeling of what does it feel like for me to be in this organization? Do I feel safe expressing an opinion that my boss may not share? Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, you know, we all come into it with our own limitations as human beings. And, you know, what happened when we spoke up at the dinner table when we were 10 years old and it didn't work out very well right. or whatever it is. But I think there's, there's, um, and that's what I'm happy to see that in a lot of the discussions on leadership or organizational learning, people are really starting to address these kinds of things. So for instance, if you look at a couple things I found that are really interesting. One of them is the modern agile concept uh, that Joshua Karieski has come up with, because this is an attempt to say, how, how can we speak more generally about agility outside of, but including the, the, the realm of product development or software product development specifically. And he talks a lot about psychological safety. Hmm. And this was something uh, and this is something Deming talked about in the lean movement about driving fear out of the workplace, the importance of doing that so that people are really willing to share their intelligence without feeling like they're going to get put down or punished for it. Right. Um, and then uh, at Google, uh, they, they have this whole site called Rework that talks about some of the experiments and research they've done. And they've looked at the most effective teams at Google, how were they different from the least effective teams? And the number one criterion by far that they came up with was psychological safety. So I think we have a, we have a long way to go as a culture in terms of really understanding how important that is and having managers who really understand that and can open up to it. Because I think a lot of us got schooled. If you're older, you got schooled in this idea that, well, you know, you weren't supposed to bring your feelings into the workplace, but in fact, the feelings are actually important information. Absolutely. And the topic of a whole nother discussion that is certainly important to have. And as an aside, I've been really interested in reading lately about Microsoft and how the, the new CEO at Microsoft is kind of rebuilding the, the soul of Microsoft and is, and is doing it in that manner of making it a safer place to really to, to learn. He talks about that a lot. The old culture was you were expected to know what you're supposed to know. And now the new culture is more about there's always going to be things that we don't know and we need to be learning quickly so we can advance. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of signs of that really taking shape in Microsoft. And it's becoming a, a company once again to admire and, and like for what they're getting done. That's, yeah, that's great. We could certainly go down that path. And I appreciate you bringing it up because I think culture is such an important aspect of a, a well functioning organization. And there's that discussion between what's really more important culture or strategy and i think the right answer is you know both right we, we need strong elements of both to support each other i do want to make sure we have time to talk about specific tools so i'm going to ask you about that next which is when it comes to helping an organization become more strategically agile the strategic agility aspect what are specific principles or tools that you apply in working with them to help make that happen so that listeners can understand that there are some tools to that they might be able to grab a hold of to help their work kind of expand a little bit more strategically too. There's two that I'll talk about. One of them is called OKR, which is mm -hmm. Objectives and Key Results. So OKR is a, I would say, a simple, easy to learn, lightweight, 
very engaging approach to strategy deployment. And the idea with OKR, it's some of the things that we've been talking about, is that every quarter, typically, uh, a team would go through a process of saying, let's let's review our assumptions about what's important. Let's review what we know about our strategy, what might have changed in it. And then let's just set one or two targets for the next period of time. And these targets are expressed as an objective with some key results that support it. So the objective is an aspirational qualitative statement of direction. So it might be something like make our customers love us. You know, it could be something catchy and a bit emotional like that that also might feel like a really big stretch. It might feel Mm -hmm. uncomfortable. We don't know how to do that. Uh, That's a moonshot. It's like when Kennedy said, let's go to the moon. Nobody quite knew how to do it yet, but they did it. Mm-hmm. So the objective then is supported by key results, where are, which are some specific business outcomes that you can measure. So you might say, well, customers will love us um, if our net promoter score goes up from five, where it is right now, to eight. Now, the interesting thing with an OKR is that it doesn't tell you what to do. It isn't saying let's build a new computer interface. It's saying what the business outcome is. And then you leave the team to very flexibly week by week do shorter term experiments and say, well, well, okay, what's going to influence that metric? So even though the game only lasts for a quarter, you're very clear what the goalposts are. And then at the end of the quarter, you might keep the goalposts, you might change the goalposts. So it's Mm -hmm. a it's what uh, James Cars called an infinite game, where you're recognizing that the, the shape of the field changes all the time. It's not something as simple as football, right, where it's very clear what the rules are. Uh, that's not the way it is in, in organizational life anymore. Right. So OKRs are one. And, and OKRs are... In a way, some strategy people really look down on OKRs because they seem too simple. But the fact of the matter is Google adopted this approach when it was uh, 20 guys. And they were probably all men working above a pizza parlor on University Avenue in Palo Alto, California. And they built Google with that kind of an approach. So I think in the right kind of environment, that really works. And that's been adopted by Adobe and Intuit, a lot of other Silicon Valley companies that are product focused mm-hmm. and has led to um, retail organizations, um, organizations that are more oriented towards services. So it's it's really catching on across the economy. And simple is useful. You know, my background is engineering. If you're involved in development of products and not the product management aspect so much, we want things that are simple, you know, th- these guidelines that help us to move forward, but don't really get in the way of the work where we believe is most important, right? If I'm an engineer, I believe, you know, my contributions to getting this this product put together are most important. And if you can alleviate some of the strategic overhead and still help us all be successful, all the better. So I really like simple tools. Yeah. And I think even for companies or organizations that aren't involved in a highly complex, uncertain, hyper-competitive atmosphere. Uh, Like I have one client that's, uh, you know, it's a municipal government. Uh And 
you know, that's a relatively stable environment. But the problem is that they just find that people aren't engaged with the strategy. The strategy was right. too heavy on design and too light on implementation. They like the idea of an iterative approach and just focusing on one thing at a time that they can actually get behind. So we're in there working with them using this OKR approach. Yeah, and when it becomes too complicated, it's hard to relate the work that you're doing as a, a employee in the organization to the bigger strategy. And when you can get those things aligned, when, when I know that what my work is doing at the end of the day, how that contributes to the big picture of the organization, I'm likely going to feel much more motivated and more engaged and, and bring my better work to the job each day. That's right. Exactly. I mean, engagement is a huge crisis in our society. Like Gallup does these studies every three or four years about mm -hmm. the engagement of the workforce, and they have a very precise definition of engagement, which they then correlate with more, you know, objective measures of organizational performance. And, uh, you know, it's quite interesting. A more engaged workforce creates a much more successful company. And um, only about a third of American workers are engaged. And the only good news in that is most other industrial countries are worse, believe it or not. Not, not much of a silver lining, is it? So... No, no, it's not comforting, uh, which means that two-thirds of the people at work are um, they're either just disengaged and kind of neutral or they're act actively disengaged. They're like hmm. Holly and Dilbert, who is, you know, just constantly sabotaging things. And, uh, you know, it really makes a huge difference. Yeah. So, so getting people involved, rather than doing some you know, a trust walk or something like that. I don't mean to totally put that idea down, but I think if you're going to treat people like adults, having everybody involved in discussion about what our goals are, you know, like you would in a family, mm -hmm. why not? Uh, that's, that's the most effective way to actually keep people engaged, I believe. Very good. So we have OKRs as, a, as one tool, objectives and key results. And you said there was another key one that you also like. Yeah, it's conversation. It's healthy dialogue. Where I've landed on this one is that I've been doing a lot of research with organizations I consider very agile. And one that I talked to, they're a research firm, and they, they mine social media on behalf of clients to find out what people are saying about them mm -hmm. um, in any language on the Internet. I mean, they're global in nature. And... So the whole thing that they sell is meaning. So it's a very abstract kind of product. And what I found with them is the people I talked to said, well, we use OKRs for a few things. Like if we need to refactor the way our databases are organized, well, we'll set up an OKR and that'll go on for three or four months. But as far as what we do day to day, we're constantly in conversation with each other. And We've really gotten very precise about the process we go through where we say, what's the problem? Do we know what the problem is? Once we agree on that, what are some solutions? Who's going to do what? So there's this very healthy process of brainstorming and then making and managing agreements that come out of that and then doing retrospectives afterwards. And they're just constantly in that kind of conversation uh -huh. on Skype or Zoom, or one of these tools across eight time zones, and that's how they manage their business. So 
as I see it, if you're at the extreme end of the agility, uncertainty, complexity kind of scale, dialogue actually becomes the most important thing, which can be supplemented by OKRs. And then OKRs are something that's a little bit more in the middle and a great way to align people, particularly if they're working on more ongoing projects. So it's like the idea the team can agree this is what we're going to focus on for the next quarter. Now leave us alone and let us do it. You know, like an agile sprint, very similar idea. And when it comes to those, the, the agile type sprint, something that product managers all, uh, we all can relate to is working on these uh, smaller cross-functional dynamic teams mm-hmm. and product management the role itself is is so unique. And one reason why we're talking about this is because I believe product managers should have a role in leadership and helping to drive the strategy of organizations as their careers progress, largely in part because we have this really unique perspective that is developed through our experience because we work so cross-functionally and we see all the aspects of the organization. And it probably gives us a better systems view than most people actually have inside of companies. And I'm curious what your thoughts then are because of this this world that we live in as product managers, how the cross-functional team contributes to this too. So the, the healthy dialogue you just talked about sounds like that's taking place more at a maybe a, a leadership-type level, but the people getting the work done from product managers are living in these cross-functional teams, and, and how is that a contributor? Well, a, a couple of initial thoughts. I mean, one of them is the second problem I mentioned with strategy is there's insufficient engagement throughout the organization in determining what the strategy is. So Mm -hmm. if you look at being in a product manager role and kind of looking up in the organization, you absolutely need to be involved in the strategy because you're at the intersection of understanding like what is technically possible or achievable or even dreamable. What are your customers responding to? And that's very important information that needs to get fed up, uh, you know, into the process. The, that intelligence needs to feed up. So I think product managers have a huge role to play. Yeah, and that's important information. Uh, and just to underscore the cross-functional aspect, we're good at having knowledge of what's working in other functions of the organization and trying to, you know, add some transparency with what's working what's not working. Yeah, it's a very special position that way because I think you have to do a lot of integrative thinking to be a good product manager. Right. It's not for the faint of heart. So some tangible tools here. We have the OKRs, healthy dialogue. As you were talking about, I was thinking about, you know, added transparency. Uh, I asked you about the use of these cross-functional teams. This kind of intersection between the healthy dialogue and the OKRs of we, we know what we're focused on right now, and we're probably talking about that a lot more. And then, you know, we move on to the next thing that we're focused about. Right. This is a terrible analogy, but it popped in my head because I like the uh, television series uh, MasterChef. You ever watched Ma- MasterChef? I have not. So th- they do these team competitions. So MasterChef is a show about the best home cook in America they're trying to find. But along the way, they have these team competitions. There's always two teams. And the team that does the best, they're usually in like a professional cooking situation where they're cooking for a large number of people. The team that does the best are the ones that are talking all the time. They're in dialogue about what's coming up next. What do we need to get done? What are we working on right now? And obviously, this is very tactical and not strategic, but it stands out as a great example to me of the importance of being in constant conversation. And when the teams aren't talking to each other, that's when they completely fall apart in these challenges. 
Absolutely. I mean, and that's, that's where, when you look at how teams work, this idea of diversity, um, it's not just what, what gender we are or what ethnic background we have. It's, it's also the way that we think. And, and Absolutely. those other things are more external markers, which give us different experiences in life. And you need to have, everybody needs to feel safe saying what they have to say from where they sit. And having that heard and respected, and you're going to have a better result. And mm-hmm. I think that's what you're seeing at the cooking level. And you see the same thing on an executive team. Mm-hmm. The, the most effective executive teams I've ever worked with in terms of developing a strategy and validating it and implementing it in their organization are people who respect diversity. Like I think one of the best CEOs I ever worked with, he would hold back and, and let Everybody around the table say what they had to say, and they would joke about the typical disagreements like, well, Joe, there you go again. You always say that, and Suzanne always tends to say this, and then um, basically the leader would just poll everybody to see, are you on board or not, you know, using a technique like a fist of five or something like that, or, you know, how much agreement are you on a scale of one to ten? And if right. anybody below eight, he'd say, well, Dave, uh, what would it take to at least get you up to an eight? Yeah, and talk more. It's an effective technique, you know, and, and that's a technique that agile teams use, and I've seen it at the executive level, and, you know, we're more alike than different in that way. It's just a, a group of people trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, and I appreciate you bringing some of these concepts to us and think about how can we be more strategic in a in a flexible, fast manner that lets us pivot, and I'm just going to reiterate that key phrase uh, that I like so much from you, the start less, finish more, and pivot fast. Because our organizations need that kind of agility, and product managers can help contribute to that. And as the everyday innovators know, I love a good innovation quote. I always ask guests for one. Can you share what you brought for us and tell us why why that one's important to you? Sure. A little bit embarrassing, but I'm actually going to quote myself. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, good. Um, Because I've been playing a lot with the idea of what strategy is, because, you know, I went to business school an embarrassingly long time ago. And I have to say, at that point, when I was in my 20s, I took a strategy class, and I didn't think it was very interesting. I thought it was very abstract. It was a world I didn't belong in. I was much more focused on operations and people and those kinds of things. I think a lot of people get put off by the term strategy again, because they think that it's a strategic plan and it's, they may have unpleasant associations with that. So here's what I've come up with. I say this strategy is a theory of the future that enables us to move forward into uncertainty. And let me just unpack that a little bit. So uncertainty, the idea with that is that, um, When we're in an uncertain situation, we either want to pretend we know what's going to happen, or we just throw up our hands and say, I have no idea, I'll just go with my gut. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, I think, as people, we need to learn how to embrace uncertainty in more creative ways to really explore that and say, well, what if that happens? What if this other thing happens? You know, what do you worry about? What what else have you heard that you think is is relevant to this? And really encourage each other to do that. And there's a lot of tools out there like scenario planning that I, I won't go into right now that really help with that. So the more you talk, have that kind of strategic conversation, what you're doing is developing 
a theory of the future. You have an idea of what might be happening, and you don't have to assume that that is what's going to happen. You recognize that it's a theory, and it's something that you're going to test and validate. And that's what you do with these shorter-term cycles like OKRs, is that you're constantly trying new things and then having a very open conversation about what happens. So strategy is a theory of the future that enables us, meaning us, a group, to move forward into uncertainty. I appreciate you coming up with that quote and describing it to us, uh, because we are all dealing with uncertainty, and that makes a great connection with what is strategy really about. Because people sitting in organizations, that you know, there, there's some strategic plan going on. When you ask the individual in an organization, you know, what's the strategy of your company? Most people don't know, right? It's not commun- it's not communicated well. And your emphasis on having the discussion about what is it that's going to enable us to move forward, even though we don't know everything about what we're going to move forward into. I, I appreciate the quote. Strategy is a theory of the future that enables us to move forward into uncertainty. Dan, this is great. Really good information, good things to help, I think, stretch the everyday innovators, some of us, into thinking more strategically and how our roles can contribute to a more uh, flexible, agile organization as a whole. How can people find out about the work that you're doing and connect with you if they want to? Well, I'm always open to uh, connecting on LinkedIn. So again, my name is Dan Montgomery. You can find me. um, I'm in the greater Denver area. My company is called Agile Strategies. So uh, there are a few Dan Montgomerys out there, but I think you can you can find me that way. And I also have a website, agilestrategies.com. So there's a hyphen between Agile and Strategies. But if you just go in and Google Agile Strategy or something close, I'm sure you'll find me pretty quickly. Excellent. Dan, thanks for your time and thanks for the information. All right. Thank you. Great talking with you. Thanks for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with Dan at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 151. Also, don't forget to download the top 10 insights from the first 100 plus interviews. You'll find that at the home for this podcast, which is theeverydayinnovator.com. Thanks again. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.